Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I read an article by Bill Durland in the May-June 2023 issue of Western Friend called Martyrs for Conscience Sake. And I also note that there's a podcast of Visit with Bill on the Western Friends site as well. The article provides a very short history of those martyred as they spoke truth to power over the past 2,500 years. Today, we'll visit with Bill and Jeannie Durland about the article and about the violence in Israel-Palestine, a place they've both visited to gather facts and serve as witnesses in. Bill is an attorney, and he has served with the Virginia House of Delegates, and both Bill and Jeannie have served with the Center on Law and Pacifism at the Pendle Hill Retreat Center and with Christian Peacemaker Teams, and in other ways and with other groups. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. Bill and Jeannie Durland join us today via Zoom from their home near Denver, Colorado. Bill, it's good to talk to you again. It's been 10 years since I had you here for Spirit in Action. Yeah, I remember that. That was a wonderful time we were with you. And it was good that I was down in your area or over in your area of the country there in Colorado, where I've been just a few times in my life. It was a nice week we had there back in 2013. As I recall, during that interview, you said something about wanting to retire Have you managed to do that now that you're 90 or so? Well, I retired from my law practice in 2016, but nobody would let me retire. And then I was writing plays, as you might have known, for about 10 years to 2020. So we've been very busy in our uh, retirement. If people want to get a hold of the plays, what's the most convenient way for them to track them down? They're all contained in a printing that we put together uh, several years ago. If somebody wants to get one, I can get more printed and send it to them. So should they just email you? Right. Or they can call us. Okay. Well, just so you know, folks, I have the email for Bill and Jeannie Durland on the northernspiritradio.org website. So you'll be able to contact them if you want to get a hold of the compilation of the plays that they've been writing. We talked about that 10 years ago. Do you know how many you're up to? How many plays? There are 10 in there between 2010 and 20. Interestingly, the last one had a conversation between Donald Trump and Dorothy Day of the Catholic Worker Movement. (laughs) This sounds delightful. I don't suppose you have it handy so you could read us an excerpt. Here's the Dorothy Day. So Trump stays off. I'm a New Yorker too, Miss Day. Tell me how about a night on the town with me. I love Catholics and I'm a quick worker. Dorothy Day says, I know all about you, Donald. I'll pass up that offer. And Trump says, but I don't know about you. Are you worth a million? And Dorothy says, let me talk and you be the judge. And it goes on from there. It's pretty extensive. Day talks about loving your enemy. Trump goes on and so does Dorothy. Dorothy says, as far as the Catholic worker, never was anyone turned away, much less for race, creed, gender, or any ism. We created Catholic worker farms as a place of work and respite, refused to pay taxes for war, 
and witness to what we believed until we were thrown in prison. Our paper was only a penny a copy. Trump, a penny a copy? That's no way to make a deal. You need to read my book on how to bully your way to economic wealth. I don't visit prisons, even though some of my friends are in them. Uh, so they uh, kind of separate themselves. About uh, This one says, our philosophy is the principal one. Do what works for everyone and get caught doing it through our witness, which is open and transparent no matter where it leads. And sometimes that's jail. And Trump says, ugh, that's the last place to go. Not productive and neither is your crazy religious economy. No matter, I've always been a winner because my following is comprised of far-right Christians. I call them fricks. They support the other part of my base, militarism, confederism, and conservative corporations. We rule America by keeping it white and blocking out immigrants. I love America first, certainly not money. I'm the saint, not you, Dottie. <laughs> Do you think that Donald Trump would stand by the words that you're putting in his mouth in this play? I try to be consistent to what he was saying and what I know of Dorothy, who I met personally and spent some time with many years ago before she died. So I think I had a understanding. This was written three or four years ago, but it's typical Trump. Just to be clear, these 10 plays that you've written between 2010 and 2020, are you the writer? Are you and Jeannie the writers? Is she your editor? How does this work? That's a good question. This all started, and I didn't realize I could write plays at the time, and I would just have something in my head. Uh, you know, I'm 92 and 82 then, so there was a lot of memories and a lot of information filed into my brain, and it would just flow out, and I would do one play and figure that was it. I said what I needed to say, and then months later, something else, and I could write them very quickly. Jeannie has been the editor and puts it in print, which I could never do. And so she is a co-conspirator on this operation. It sounds like a very good partner to have in your work. She is. All these plays were presented publicly in uh, all kinds of different places by what we called the Reader's Theater's Player. Friends of ours and others we got to know when the plays became popular. It was sort of a family operation. Nobody got paid. The money that we collected usually went to needy situations and operations. So it was a very enjoyable thing. COVID came along and that stopped it for just the last play, which was presented during the COVID period. It sounds like something I have to check out. All you listeners for Northern Spirit Radio, for Spirit in Action, on my website, I'll include whatever links I can come up with so you can connect with these plays, including contact information for Bill and Jeannie Durland. But that's not why I invited you here today, Bill. It's because I read the article in the May-June issue of Western Friend, an article called Martyrs for Conscience Sake. 
In it, you talk about speaking truth power and you talk about over history for 2,500 years, various people who have been martyrs for conscience sake. I had an observation about the content of this article, and I hope that Jeannie is nearby so she can hear this too. Yes, I can hear. When I interviewed the two of you back in 2013, and you talked about how you initially connected back when you, Bill, were a professor, the course you were teaching that she was taking, she described it a bit in that interview, and it sounds a bit like the content of Martyrs for Conscience Sake. Does that ring any bells for either of you? Yeah, that was limited theologically and otherwise to Jesus, Gandhi, and King. This paper picks up, and it's much broader, as you can see, from very early times to later ones. So, Jeannie, do you want to say how you wound up in that (laughs) classroom? Well, I had just decided to go back to school after a divorce. I was interested in philosophy. That was my major in college. And I was interested in peace studies. And so that course seemed perfect. What it taught me was that peace, pacifism, is not a political position. It's a way of life. So it's all-encompassing. It's to do with everything in your day-by-day life, as well as how you look at things like war. I mean, that's in a nutshell. That started me on my present career, which is as a trying to live the life of peace and as a peace activist. I think there was another thing we shared, and that was when we say Jesus is Gandhi and King, This is the Jesus who might look like you. This is the Jesus who is a person, a man, a human being, who preached and practiced it and became a martyr as a result of that because he said things that were out of belief at the time as how human beings should act together with love, justice, and mercy. I posted something on Facebook that was referring to some of the information, the stuff that we get from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And another Quaker that I know came back with the counterpoint that really the stuff attributed to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is really from Hillel, the Jewish leader of the early times, almost contemporary with Jesus. Is Hillel one of the people you studied too? I came to know several rabbis, and one who interested me very much, I can't remember his name right now, but he wrote that Jesus was a Jewish martyr. Jesus was in the line of Jewish history, but was just the opposite of Moses, who declared wars and violence. And Jesus came up with a teaching and practice for a life that this rabbi said, although I respect Jesus, this would never work among homo sapiens, (laughs) which sometimes I call homo stupidians. And they were right, because Jesus said, uh, Moses of old said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say for you to love your enemies. Well, that should be practiced, and it is practical, and would have something to do with the elimination of military assault weapons and the terrorism of a Palestinian people over 75 years, where they are indigenous and their land was taken to them by a violent power. 
Right. Well, let's talk about the overview of this article. Again, it's in Western Friend in the May-June 2023 issue. It's by Bill Durland, who we're speaking with, also his wife, Jeannie Durland. The overview of the article is you start talking about power in this essay is a brief history of a few of the countless individuals who have spoken truth to power over the past 2,500 years and sacrificed their lives for it. So this article is particularly about martyrs for conscience sake. Are martyrs in some ways more important than those who don't get killed for their witness? Well, the name of the word martyr doesn't necessarily mean that a martyr has to die for conscience sake. It means that they stand up and are refused in their lives for what they believe. But in a six-page paper, and you know, in Western Friend, I've had some things printed there that were radically reduced because of the space and, and done very well. So I had to limit myself to those who died. That came to my mind as I wrote this paper. Again, you start the article by talking about this phrase, speak truth to power, that originates back in, I guess it was probably the 1940s. Bayard Reston is the person who first we know as speaking it. Could you talk about the concept of speaking truth to power, what that means? Yeah, I would say I knew very little about Bayard Rustin. He was there when I attended the March on Washington in 1963, but he becomes much later given credit for doing much of that 1963 preparation and statements and speaking truth to power by these people and others who followed him I think constitute, you know, as they say with people in war, that they're afraid, but their courage takes over their fears. And speaking truth to power takes place by people who are willing naturally to overcome the objections to what they have to say. In my case, I always wanted to be popular and happy and say the nice things that brought me more friends, but I learned through the life that principle has to be what we say to power, and it does work. So I think part of the essence of this is speaking truth to power as opposed to force meeting force, you know, an eye for an eye, as opposed to skulldudgery, uh, you know, manipulation behind the back manipulations. Speaking truth to power is coming straight on without weapons in hand. Does that seem accurate? It is. And if I could give you a little aside from my own experience, when I was in the Virginia legislature in the 1960s, I had a bill, the PKU bill, that was called, which was a condition that newborns would get and they would become damaged, but a simple change of diet would prevent that happening, which would take place over 18 months if the diet wasn't adhered to. And it seemed like, you know, the easiest thing. I was a civil rights attorney and this was brought to my attention. You wouldn't realize how much opposition to something so obvious. And in the dark holes one Friday evening as we were going away for the weekend, 
a assistant to the governor who was also democratic came up to me and said if you don't vote for the governor's sales tax bill which tax poor people if you don't vote for that we're going to kill your baby bill and i said well the blood's on your hands i'm not going to vote for it i stand by the babies and you can do what you want and wouldn't you know it was successful it passed and uh, started saving 23 lives a year when it was first passed in, in the population and is still in existence today. It was a child nutrition type bill, the bill you were advocating for? No, it was about phenylketonuria. It's a Just type a of protein test. that causes disabilities in children if that protein is continued in the diet. So you take it out of the diet and they're okay. Otherwise, they became, what did they call them at that? In those days, they said mentally retarded. But it was a simple blood test to diagnose it. That's what the bill required. Yeah, the bill required a blood test in order to find out whether the child would be damaged by fetal ketonuria. And if that blood test showed that, then you simply remove it from the baby's diet and it doesn't become mentally damaged. And it was successful then. And how was it successful that your speaking truth to power actually worked? Well, what I started to say, Mark, at the time, I didn't know anything about truth to power. I wasn't a Quaker. I was influenced by the Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Movement and all that kind of things eventually. But it just seemed to be the right thing. And I think speaking truth to power begins when we think that this is right and that is wrong. And what am I going to do about it? When people come up to you and try to bully you, sometimes that gives you more confidence to go ahead. We see that happening today to go ahead and speak truth to power because that's what's left for you to do with that strong opposition facing you. The first example that you give in your article is going back, I think, to ancient Greece, to Socrates. Could you relay Socrates' situation? Yeah, once again, we don't have a large movement. We have a would-be philosopher who was inquisitive And basically, the Socratic method that came from Socrates was simply to think more logically and critically about what you're hearing people to say as a conclusion without any facts or evidence to support it. That's how he starts off, simply asking people questions that sometimes embarrass them so that eventually he becomes unpopular. He says the unexamined life is not worth living. And people today, you can see many who don't examine life or serious issues of life and death but are either comfortable with taking themselves away from all these serious questions and practices and just being individuals apart from what the whole world is experiencing. We see that in climate change, we see that in weapons, and we see that in war. And you see the polls that we've seen and how people are so challenging to themselves when the polls don't seem to be logical and critical, even in the answers that they get, 
they contradict themselves, but they don't recognize them. What I think you're saying is that one of the first steps of speaking truth to power is to step back from all of the things around us and try and find truth, try and connect with truth and not be swayed by the various opinions swirling around us, the norms. Does that sound like the first step? And the questioning of Socrates was, in effect, forcing that. Yeah, I think, as a philosophy teacher, the critical method, if you use it, and not all the deepness of logic, but the simple teaching of critical thinking, and the ways to do that, and the ways to question what is being said to you, question it because quite often it is only a conclusion of somebody's thinking, but question whether there's any facts or evidence behind it, and what those facts or evidence should be what influences you rather than the general conclusions that people make without it. So how did this turn out for Socrates? Well, (laughs) he got in your hair. You know, I see you still have some hair. I don't. He made people think, and when they thought for the first time, many of them, they resented thinking. Therefore, they resented Socrates, and so he becomes a martyr, but he resists. Others might disagree. He resists with the choice to escape easily or to stand up to the Greek government but he says that it is the government he's trying to create as an ideal, and therefore he can't use any kind of resistance, even his own life, to that government in hopes that someday governments will be of the people. So he gives his life for that. The next example that you go on to in the article is Cicero. Marcus Tullius Cicero, who was a defender of the Roman Republic. Could you give me the synopsis of his situation? You know, this paper was a part of something that I wrote about Cicero. Cicero was the one that influenced me to write these papers because I read three books by Robert Harris about the life of Cicero. Everybody should read those books. They're so well written and so historical in a historical novel way of doing it that it seems so poignant for today. Here's somebody who wants to preserve the little bit of democracy that the Roman Republic had obtained when they threw out the kings and took on democracy. And Cicero is the epitome of that. He, unlike Socrates, has some power, but like Socrates, he's in the minority, and people lust after these powerful people like Mark Antony and Octavian, and slowly but surely, he's the only one standing up to this, and so he is given a trial, and the trial he gets is in his own home, when these powers that be come and cut off his head and hands and he becomes a martyr, he's not the type, you know, of many of these people that they think of themselves as martyrs. It's others that create that for them as they're simply speaking and practicing their truth to power. Again, I think an essential element of what you're talking about 
as speaking truth to power is focusing on truth. And instead of attempting to force it on anyone, it's the open conveying of the truth that we're hoping wins out the day. But it sounds like with both Socrates and Cicero, it didn't win out. That's not unusual. That's what gives us martyrs, I guess. If it does win out, I guess they're just heroes. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with Quaker theology and George Fox, as I see it today, where you don't stick your nose in somebody else's mouth. You witness and you vigil to the truth. And your example can even be in silence, but that silence becomes a resistance as well. I told some Quakers once that I had recorded silence if they'd like to hear it, (laughs) and they didn't laugh so much at that. (laughs) But anyway, that's how I emphasize silence in my own understanding. We don't need to go through the entire article that you, Bill Durland, have written, but folks, you can find it in the May and June issue of Western Friend. I'll have a link to it on northernspiritradio.org. And folks, just so you know, on that site, you can also listen to my interview with Bill Durland and his wife, Jeannie Durland, back 10 years ago, 2013. I visited with them when I was in northern Colorado. But all of my programs of the last 18 years are on the website, northernspiritradio.org. Please post comments. Give us your feedback. Give us your direction of where to go, because I'm really doing this program to serve our listeners And that's made a difference in the way that I fundraise. I have not solicited government money, and I do not take money from corporations. There are good corporations out there, but any of those kinds of donations come with strings. And the only strings I want to have are the strings of truth and what is going to be serviceable to my listeners. So please support us, if you can, via NordenSpiritRadio.org and support the 35-plus radio stations across the United States that carry our Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul programs. Again, we're talking to Bill and Jeannie Durland today. They're in Colorado. They're members of Mountain View Friends Meeting in Denver. Bill was a U.S. attorney, a peace activist, author, educator. And at one point in the 1960s, he was a member of the Virginia State Legislature. Amongst other things, he taught at Pendle Hill, which is a Quaker study center not too far from Philadelphia. He was active as the Center on Law and Pacifism and active with the Christian peacemaker teams. The Middle East is one area of concern that he's brought to this. All of that simply to say, let's talk a little bit more about the article here. I hope people just go and read it, and even better than reading what came out in the publication, online there's the longer form of the article, the essay that you wrote, Bill. So we've talked about Socrates and Cicero. Jesus is next on your list. There's Christian martyrs in Japan. You talk about Quakers, and so this is getting up to the 1600s, and you talk about Mary Dyer, who was killed by Puritans in the area we call New England at this point, Massachusetts. Why did you include Mary Dyer in this list? She is probably the best-known Quaker 
who gave her life for her beliefs. Although, for my reading and understanding, there was many more and people in prison, even children, simply so that dissident Christian groups could have a separate and free and equal life which is what we're asking today so much for indigenous people. Mary Dyer impressed me because she simply wanted to witness to her beliefs with her friends in Massachusetts that was governed by a very powerful and somewhat violent Calvinist rulers. And the Quaker beliefs were just the opposite of that. When her friends were in trouble with the government, uh, she went there the first time and stood with them. And the government said, anybody who comes back is going to be prosecuted and executed. And when she left and they were all kicked out, her friends came back and they were sentenced to death. She decided that she had to be with them and not in the safe place she was and went back to Puritan, Massachusetts to be with her friends, and she was also executed and gave her life a true martyr because she knew that was going to happen to her. In obedience to the will of the Lord God, I came, and in his will I abide faithful to death, she said as her last words. Quakers should remember the activists and the people who were uncomfortable in their witness on the streets, which Quakers had a reputation between the 17th century and until recently. Quakers tend to do everything in committees, very much like we did in the state legislature. I would call more Quakers to be out on the streets Many of them I know who are and are witnesses to our own issues today that are very much like this. One of the things that I've wondered about Mary Dyer, again, she was killed by the government there, the Puritan government in Massachusetts, the colony of Massachusetts. But she wasn't the only one. I understand she was at least one of four Quakers who were killed at that time. And I've seen statues for Mary Dyer but I don't think I've seen them for any of the other three. Was she just a better speaker? Was she more photogenic for a statue? Or do you, Why did she get the statues and, and recognition where we don't remember the other three's names? It's hard to answer that question, and that's what I wanted to illustrate, that there were many Quakers, unlike Mary Dyer, who are not publicized in modern times, who have done the same kind of thing. I think she was singled out from the other three Quakers is that they were there and they they weren't as vocal and didn't have an opportunity to do what she had and choose between her freedom and speaking truth to power and simply being with her friends. If that's what they're going to do or to her friends, then that's what they're going to do to her. And we've seen that repeated in Hitler's Germany and Mussolini and uh, Stalin and all of that. And we see an emergence of those kind of people who are trying to kill witnesses to power in our own time. Well, maybe we should move forward a little bit. Your article does deal with Abraham Lincoln. I don't even know how to correctly pronounce the name of the Austrian, a Catholic farmer named Franz Jagerstatter. 
That's my attempt. And Gandhi certainly is one of these. So you're coming through history, finding these various people who have been faithful to truth, spoke truth to power, and become martyrs for that. The one that got closest to my time was Archbishop Oscar Romero, who in the 1980s was killed. He was speaking up for the poor, for the disadvantaged, those who weren't serving the needs of the Central American dictators. He ended up disappearing, dying for that. I assume he was one of the people who maybe was inspirational to you coming up through the Catholic worker inspiration for a lot of your pacifism. Yeah, uh, this reminds me, Mark, that there are some people who are not activists and stand up for witness, and there are other people who publicly resist that. In the case of Romero, he was simply doing his job. One of my favorites you mentioned is Franz Jägerstadter, who was simply a farmer when Austria was invaded, and he was drafted into the army to fight for Hitler, and he refused to carry a gun. What's interesting about Jägerstadter is that, as the story goes, his pastor told him that it would be no sin for him to fight for Hitler. The sin was on other people, so he could do it innocently. He refused. His wife said, what about your family? We need you. And his mayor said the same thing. These three different people very close to him tried to change his mind. Some would have said that perhaps he should have. But he, as a a witness, made a witness, not through himself who chose it, and he was beheaded in 1943 for his witness by the Nazis. Uh, these people, yeah, I would say my Catholic upbringing, there were a lot of Catholic martyrs. And so when I heard about George Fox and Mary Dyer and became a Quaker, I saw that a continuation for me of the witness of religious activists and uh, just plain people who would stand up for what's right and truth. And that, again, happened in our time. By that time, you were probably in your 50s when Oscar Romero was martyred by the government there, by the military. But we come even closer in time when you start speaking about Rachel Corey, who was over in Palestine, the Israeli demolition of homes. I don't know how many people even have understood that there has been a systematic program carried out by Israel to just go in and bulldoze, knock down homes, and by that method, without actually just necessarily going and killing people, has made it untenable for Palestinians to live in their own territory. And Rachel Corey was over there helping out. She was witnessing. She got in front of a bulldozer and she refused to move. And she got run over by that. I think it was probably 10, 12 years ago, I interviewed her aunt who lives in this area where I do in Wisconsin. How did Rachel come to your attention, Bill? I'm going to say sort of a general introduction and have Jeannie talk about Rachel because uh, she was dear to Jeannie's heart. And Jeannie accentuated that uh, years ago in my mind. What I want to say leading up to that is that as a child, most of my friends were Jews. 
only accidentally because we all played baseball together. There was a lot of prejudice and discrimination in the United States before, during World War II, and even after, and my friends experienced that. So I had a understanding of what prejudice and discrimination and violence could be first to these Jewish friends of mine. And I think I carried that out into, thanks to Jeannie, the Palestinian experience. And I'd like to say something about that when Jeannie is talking about next on uh, Rachel Corey. Okay. When we were working in Palestine with the Christian peacemaker teams, one of our primary foci or focuses, (laughs) whatever the word is, was the home demolitions. We worked with an Israeli committee headed by an Israeli Jew named Jeff Halper, who formed a group called Israeli Committee Against Home Demolitions. Our group would often occupy a house that was under a demolition order in the West Bank. Rachel was working in Gaza, and she had made friends with this particular family whose house was under demolition order. It was that simple. She simply went out to try to stop the bulldozer and paid for it with her life. We formed here in the U.S. a group that raised money each year to send a new person that had never been there, but who had a heart for this work, to go to Palestine and help the Israeli Committee Against Home Demolitions to rebuild the home. They did this year after year with a particular family in suburban Jerusalem, and they would rebuild the home, these volunteers, and the Israelis would come in and destroy it. And so the next year they would rebuild it. This would seem to some to be a fruitless effort and a waste of money and manpower, if you will. And yet it was a powerful witness and it moved many people to understand how brutal the Israeli occupation is. The final thing I want to say is about the word martyr. During all of our work in Palestine, we would often visit the homes of families just to hear their stories and understand how they have to live. And we constantly heard the word martyr, even among people who didn't speak English but had that word. They used it to refer to any innocent person that was killed by the occupying forces, especially children. They would refer to their children that they lost as martyrs. This has always stuck in my heart as being a very important understanding of that word. Yes. And you had some more to say, Bill? I think people forget in the current media and political coverage of an attack by Hamas on Israel that killed 1,300 people that the Palestinian people are the indigenous people in that land. You may remember Moses invaded it and took it over once before from the Canaanites, who were the ancestors of what we now call the Palestinians. And the British occupied after World War I that area of Palestine, 
a very little Jewish population, but welcomed there originally. But after the population grew and the British were still there, three terrorist groups, uh, Haganah, the Stern Gang, uh, the Ergun, Zionist terrorists tried to take over the land and the UN partitioned it. And then the Zionists began their war against the UN and the partition and took over land that was not by the UN theirs. It's 75 years. Israel has violated international law by their invasions and occupations. And it is not right to kill 1,300 people as a pacifist and as a Christian and a Quaker. I know that. But I can understand the passion, just like the Native Americans, as indigenous people, when a foreign power, the United States, takes over their land and they fight back. And it's fighting back just as it is in Ukraine, as the Russians try to take over that land, is the history that you don't hear. I haven't heard it for the last two weeks on MSNBC and the programs that I and the commentators that I listen to regularly because they have been required by the media administrators to emphasize solely the massacre of those 1,300 when millions of Palestinians have been mourned over 75 years and their land still not returned to them and the U.S. saying they will stand with Israel. It is hard. I don't think in any way we want to blind our eyes to the horrific thing that Hamas did. But at the same time, it also needs to be considered in the full context. What are the facts on the ground? I'm afraid that so many people are not willing to see truth, which is why it becomes so important to speak truth to power. If you were going to state more fully the truth that you saw on the ground in Palestine, Israel, could you summarize that at all, either you, Bill, or you, Jeannie? You know, uh, Mark, I would say that we live with the truth that these were conquered people and that what we could do in speaking truth to power on the ground was to assist and help people who were damaged and violently treated by the occupiers. For us, I remember when we were fired on by the Israelis for three hours in Beit Jala while we were visiting some Palestinian family, that the truth was that this was not certainly the truth how human beings should react to each other. So we were inspired to help individuals as best we could. We were interviewed by uh, CBS, and I remember them saying, how could you two people think you could do anything to bring a change in Palestine by your witness over here? And he said, you're elderly and you could die over here. And I said, we don't want to die over here, but we don't want Palestinians to die either. And that's why we're here. It was really moving experience for us to meet people who needed individual help for individual civilians, children, and others in need. 
Thank you so much, Bill. And thank you and Jeannie for going over there and witnessing, being part of it, being part of the support of the Christian Peacemakers teams. Speaking of the article again that was shared in Western Friend in the May and June issue of 2023, eventually, as you were working through some of the witnesses for Speaking Truth to Power, you got to Tom Fox. I imagine he's a martyr that few people in the United States know about. Could you talk about what happened with him and the Christian Peacemaker team in Iraq? We both knew Tom Fox, and he was a friend of ours. We were part of the original team that CPT sent to Iraq before the so-called shock and awe to investigate the need for a permanent team in Baghdad. So we did have an introduction to life in Iraq under the sanctions. Eventually, a permanent team was established in Baghdad, and Tom and three other men were kidnapped and held for several months. Nobody knows why Tom was singled out and taken away from this group and killed, but that's what happened. And he was a Quaker. And he was doing his witness for the sake of his faith and these people under sanctions and threat of war. Eventually, the other three were released. You're right, Tom is not remembered by many people. Because I travel in Quaker circles, I, of course, met a lot of people who knew him, who were supporters of him, who were inspired by him. Is that Christian Peacemaker team still in Iraq? They have gone to Kurdistan. They stayed in Iraq for some time until their Iraqi colleagues who they worked with told them that it was just too dangerous for Americans and Brits and other foreigners to be living in Baghdad, that they should leave. So they left and went to Kurdistan and they're still there. There is a permanent team of CPTers in Kurdistan. And again, folks, CPT, Christian Peacemaker Teams. It's a very important group to learn about, and maybe you'll have a leading, a calling to follow that work, participate in it. There's one more person that stands out for me in the article, Martyrs for Conscience Sake, written by Bill Durland, with his ghostwriter, Jeannie Durland, also. (laughs) (laughs) And that is an Iranian woman, Masa Amin, and her, Amin, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name, in part because I don't speak Farsi, but she did some really important witness, ended up a martyr. Could you talk about her? Well, this 22-year-old woman met her death. She was arrested for improperly covering her hair with her hijab. She was placed in a detention center where she was beaten into a coma and died three days later. And then there were uprisings for that. But because of the dictatorial government in Iran, there is still people following her that have been put in prison and become martyrs for conscience sake. And it's a very sad event to talk about that along with everything that we have. Some people think all of this is in the past, but it's right in our present and right in our face. It's still happening everywhere in the United States, in other countries, in Iran. It's happening in Russia and in Ukraine. It's happening everywhere. 
There's just a few more things I want to ask you, Bill and Jeannie, about speaking truth to power. What are the guidelines for speaking truth to power? If I stand up with a bullhorn, is that speaking truth to power? Is there something about the manner in which we do it that is part of the essence of what we want to call speaking truth to power? I think there's an ideal and there is a, a realistic and practical. We've had experiences from, oh, I guess about 50 years with communities and activists that did that. Somebody, some move to go out and uh, plan and resist the government and other entities and others who are just called because their conscience is moving them individually to do those kind of things. I want to accentuate, and Jeannie might want to add, that I remember uh, we set up a organization in Fort Wayne, uh, Matthew 25. It was a nonviolent organization and provided free help for needy people in that city. We wrote up a one-page statement about support for nonviolence from conscience sake. And I remember a, a woman or two people who said, well, I can't sign that because I don't know whether I can do all those things. And we said, nobody knows that. Nobody knows what's going to happen next. This is a statement of what we would like to believe and practice. And that's all you have to be in order to sign this document for our nonviolent organization. And so I, I want to emphasize that people may not know they're speaking truth to power or that they have not been moved to do that or to witness for conscience sake, but they may be called or not. These are all good people, no matter our friends of arrogance were in everybody's face, as you remember, back in the 60s and 70s. I didn't think they were following my ideal of how to do this, and I had done very little at the time. But there are all kinds of manner, and some I would be more attached to. I don't like to block people in that pass our witness or activism, as some people have done from their own conscience. So there are different ways of going about this. But before we get all through, and I want to read something from George Fox that kind of sums up my view upon it. And Jeannie, did you want to add to that? I would like to just take a moment to go back to Christian peacemaker teams because I really think their method is the way to go. Their method, whenever they form a team in a foreign situation, and they are in Colombia and native land up in Canada and things like that, anyway, they don't simply go in and assess the situation and try to make up their own minds about what's needed. They require to be invited by the local people that are in need. And then they put themselves at the disposal of local people and allow the local people to tell us, the foreigners that come in, what they need from us. So I would say that any activism of speaking truth to power 
requires us to understand the position of those that we want to support and witness for. It's necessary for us to understand the needs of the most marginalized people that we come in contact with. Thank you, Jeannie. And Bill, I think you wanted to share one more thing, a quote from George Fox. Yeah, I also wanted to tell your listeners that Christian Peacemaker Teams was founded by what are known as the Historical Peace Churches, and that would be the Mennonites, the Quakers, and the uh, Church of the Brethren, and that's how it came about. For me, one of the most inspiring things that George Fox said about the Quaker movement of speaking truth to power, which didn't use those words, but went back to 1652, and how you go about it. He said that the Quaker mission was speaking the truth abroad, awakening the witness, confounding deceit, and gathering out of the transgression into the life of the covenant of light and peace with God. Let all nations hear the word by sound or writing. Spare not tongue or pen, but be obedient to the Lord God and go through the work and be valiant for the truth upon earth. Then, then you will come to walk cheerfully over the world, answering that of God in everyone. Then that will happen to you. And you will be cheerful for your witness and your speaking truth to power, for your speaking to people who have some of God in everyone. And you, Bill, and you, Jeannie, certainly have been doing that with your lives for decades. I'm so, so thankful for your witness in the world, the way you've taught and the way you've led, the way you've modeled how we can best serve the world with our witness, and even if that leads to martyrship. Thank you both for joining me again today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. And folks, I am going to have links so you can track down the plays that have been written by Bill with Jeannie Selp and other organizations that we've connected with, including the Christian Peacemakers teams. All those things will be on northernspiritradio.org. Please join us again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh